but unless you're turning over your shoulder repeatedly, you're not going to look at, but our clock is behind. It says that it's 9.45. And since I normally stop talking at, oh, you know, 10, 15 till, I figure that means I've got an hour to uh, speak to you today. So, I hope you're ready for that. Now, I wouldn't do that to you. My, my dad always impressed upon me that the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. And I hope that your minds absorb what we have to say this morning. For some weeks now, we've been exploring the more excellent way of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That is the way of love. This is imperative for those of us who would be followers of Christ. Because Scripture tells us that where God is, love is. Because God is love. It's inherent in His very nature. It's part of His essence. But what do we mean by that? What is the result, the product, the end of this love? In 2011, Rob Bell, who was a preacher at a megachurch, Mars Hill Bible Church, wrote a book entitled Love Wins. Bell's thesis was essentially that because God is love, the ultimate end of that love will not permit anyone to be condemned. Everyone ultimately will be reconciled to God, either in this life or the next. So with that view of love, there's no room for sin, no room for judgment. For Bell, God's love ends in universalism. We've heard that same phrase, love wins, in more recent years as a political slogan, uh, promoting tolerance, or maybe even more accurately, proactive acceptance of an increasing number of things that are contrary to what we read about in Scripture. Love does indeed win. I want to stress that. But only if by that we mean the sort of love that is characteristic of God's nature. The love that He expects and even demands of His people. God is love, but we're also told that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. The Hebrews writer says that our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. And that picture of the heavenly throne room, Revelation 4, verse 8, they praise God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is love. God is light, and in Him is no darkness. God is holy. The love that characterizes God's nature, you see, is very, very different from what we typically mean when we talk about love. In this chapter, we find a number of characteristics of this sort of love presented, and in particular in our text this morning, every one of these traits that we find is a verb 
in the Greek. That tells us that love isn't just a feeling. Love isn't just butterflies in the pit of your stomach. Love isn't syrupy sentimentality. Love isn't abstract. Love isn't something ineffable or mysterious. Love is active. It's something that we do. Love is a decision. Love is a choice that we make. It's to will the good, to choose the good for the beloved, that object of our love. Love is only truly love when it acts. The Apostle John reminds us, 1 John 3, verse 18, Little children, let us love not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So if love is willing the good for others, we should do all the good we can to all the people that we can for as long as we can. Now, Paul's been teaching about love primarily by talking about what it's not. As we've seen, love is, love is not rude. Love is not irritable. Love does not boast. But in our text this morning, he flips that around and he asks us to consider the positive side of love. He gives us another number of qualities that we want to think about together this morning. So the first one contrasts with the last negative element that it follows. Love supports the truth. In verse number six, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. It doesn't rejoice with thoughts deeds, words, actions that are, that are false, that are untrue, that are unrighteous, not right with God. It's unrighteousness, not love, that tries to justify sinful actions, words, and attitudes. See, love isn't concerned about popular opinion. It's not concerned about political expediency. Love is concerned with the truth. It doesn't smile at things that aren't true just for the sake of peace. You know, I'm okay, you're okay, we can all get along, we don't have to agree. Uh, the hippie Jesus, as I once heard someone describe him. On the other hand, love doesn't revel in the untruth of others. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. You know, there are some Christians out there who won't do evil themselves, but they like to see other people fall into it. They like to see people get their comeuppance. Are you one of those people who's glad when you see another's calamity, their misfortune, their failure? Do you secretly rejoice? Maybe you don't talk about it too much, but when somebody else's weaknesses are exposed, do you, do you find some little tingle of joy down there? Paul tells us that love does not do that. It never takes joy in wrongdoing. And in fact, doing that ourselves is a sin. We're to rejoice only with the truth. Love doesn't look for tidbits of untruth to pass on. That means love doesn't participate in gossip. And real love will be offended by gossip when it encounters it. 
It doesn't deal with innuendo at all. So in sum here, love rejoices with studying and learning and comprehending the truth. The mind that seeks after God, and if we're going to be people who pursue love, we have to seek after God because remember, God is love. He's the source of love. The mind that seeks after God and seeks after love rejoices when it learns the truth about God. If you really possess love, if you really want to love, you'll be someone who seeks God's truth. Doctrine is one of those words that gets a bad rap these days. You know, we hear sometimes that we can't be too strong on doctrine, on our teachings, on theology, if you want to call it that, if we want to love people. You Christians, you just can't be so dogmatic about your doctrines. You need to let go of some of those beliefs if you're really going to love others. If we really and truly love others, then we have to love them in truth. Sound doctrine is really only right thinking, right thinking about God, right thinking about ourselves, right thinking about others. And if we're really going to love others, we'll know the truth. We'll love them in truth rather than loving them in self-deception. Now, we have to remember, on the other hand, love doesn't rejoice at the wrongs of others. It doesn't seek to expose them. It doesn't seek to belittle people. It doesn't seek to tear them down in, every, in any way. Love doesn't disregard unrighteousness, but at the same time, as much as possible, it focuses on what's true and what's right. We have to maintain that balance there. Love doesn't rejoice in falsehood. It doesn't rejoice in what's wrong, but its primary business is to build up, not to tear down. It's to strengthen, not to weaken. We go on and we might encapsulate the next few verses by saying love is empowering. Love is empowering. Verse 7 continues to outline this positive good done by love, and Paul outlines it in four ways here. First of all, he says, love bears all things. Love bears all things. The root of this verb is the same one as the Greek noun for a roof. In other words, what we're saying here is that love covers all things the same way that a roof does. It protects. It wraps itself around the object of its love. When we're talking about the sinner here, it throws that roof of compassion up there over the sinner. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, he exhorts us above all to keep loving one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So when love bears all things, it keeps out resentment, the way that a roof keeps out rain. Love stands up against the storms of disappointment and sin. Love is able to withstand the winds of time and of change. Love is, love is able to endure and to bear up under the worst possible circumstances imaginable. 
Now, love doesn't just bear all things passively in the same way that a doormat bears all feet, you know, takes things there, it has to. But love never stops caring. Love never stops offering forgiveness. Love never stops offering a place of reconciliation and restoration. Love cares and it never ceases to pray for the object of its love. It takes every opportunity to patiently endure the sins of others. Love genuinely feels the pain of those whom it loves. It helps to bear the burdens of the ones it loves. We have this pictured for us most perfectly in Christ. He loved us to the extent that He was even willing to bear all things, to bear the consequence of our sins. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah writes, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon Him. We see next, love also believes all things. When we see belief in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, it usually refers to our belief in God. But it seems here that Paul's talking about our belief in others. Believing the best about others. I like the way that Philip's translation puts it. There is no end to its trust. Love isn't naive. This sort of belief doesn't mean that we're gullible. But it does mean that people of the truth expect others to be true. We won't be cynical. We won't be suspicious of others. We'll believe the best about other people. We'll think the best about them. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt rather than automatically believing the worst about others. It should lead us to, to see the conduct of our fellow man in the best possible light. Love sees, because it believes others, that God can take people and radically transform them. Do you think do you believe that God can take the most unworthy, the most flawed, the most unlovable people imaginable and transform them into masterpieces of grace and beauty? We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, then that means God can never do anything with me. He can never do anything with you. It means that God can never love me and that God can never love you because we're all, each of us, extremely flawed in our own individual ways. If you've been here on Sunday night, we've seen this story play out again and again as God takes 12 ordinary men who are all very flawed in their own specific ways and transforms them, molds them, shapes them into His apostles. If we're going to err, love errs in the way of being too trusting, not too suspicious, not too guarded. Now, we're to be wise, 
Jesus says that you're to be as wise as serpents, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. But my point is we can be too wary. We can be too guarded. We can be too distrustful. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather stand before God in judgment and be guilty of being too trusting, going the second mile, giving my cloak instead of just my tunic, rather than being too suspicious of other people. Let's let our love look beyond what people are to see their potential, what they can become. Love also, our text says, hopes all things. Love doesn't despair. It sees the bright side. Even when evil appears to be winning in the moment, love hopes that truth, justice are going to prevail. And this isn't just a a pie-in-the-sky hope and optimism with no basis in reality. This is hope born of confidence, assurance that God is in control. He's going to work things out to accomplish His will, His purpose. If you were in our class this morning, we looked at the book of Acts and we talked about this in the political realm. Sometimes people despair because they look around at the state of the world, but Acts reminds us that everything that takes place, God can turn it around and use it to accomplish His purpose. He's already won the victory. Nothing can stand up to the progress of the kingdom of God. We can think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, in verse number 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Now you notice he doesn't say that only good things happen to people who love God. But he says that ultimately, in the end, good, bad, whatever happens, God will turn it around and His will, His purpose, will be accomplished. So our faith, our trust, our confidence, our hope in God means that we can be sure that human failures aren't final. They don't render the ultimate verdict. Real love can hope because it's a hope that rests in this assurance of who God is and His actions in history and His actions in our own individual lives. And you know, it, it's only people who love God, only people who are Christians who can have any real basis for hope in this life. That's the power of love. Love that isn't fueled by emotion, but love that is sustained and rooted in this confidence, this trust in God. Finally, under this larger rubric of love being empowering, Paul says, love endures all things. That word means a capacity for resolute continuance in a course of action. We're talking here about perseverance, no matter the circumstances. Love can persevere through miseries, through disappointments, through heartaches, through persecutions, through provocations. I like the way, again, Philip's translation puts this. He says, love can outlast anything. Real love is a survivor because its source, its life, its power is found in God. And we know that God is more powerful than anything, and God and His love can outlast anything. And so love bears what is otherwise 
unbearable. Love believes what is otherwise unbelievable. Love hopes when otherwise it would be hopeless. Love endures when anything other than love would have long since given up. After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. And nothing comes after endurance. Because that's the love that lasts forever. It goes on and on and on. And that brings us to the final triumph of love, the success of love in verse number 8. Love never ends. Your translation may say, love never fails. That's what was read a moment ago. But we're talking about failing here in the sense of cessation, in the sense of ending, ceasing. We're talking here about the perpetuity of love. Love doesn't stop. Love doesn't end. Love doesn't quit. And you know, the best evidence of that in this chapter in particular, this absolute value of love is its eternal permanence in contrast to everything else that's listed here. Uh, Paul goes on and he says, prophecies will pass away, tongues will cease, knowledge will pass away, but love never ends. In fact, even these other good qualities, verse 13, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. Faith and hope are excellent qualities. But Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Love endures forever. Wouldn't it be great if God could just take that sort of love and imprint it in our hearts and on our lives? <laughs> and if we could just go out and practice it with no hitches, no problems whatsoever? You see, if we want to be people who live out the more excellent way, as we've been talking about for weeks and weeks now, we'll be people who put all of these virtues into practice in our lives. Remember, love is active. It does. It's not just a feeling. But we find that life presents us with opportunity after opportunity to practice loving. In our society, we tend to think of life like a playground. It's all fun and games. It's all about pursuit of our own pleasure. It's like the bumper sticker that was popular a few years ago, whoever dies with the most toys wins. That's the way a lot of people think about this life. But life isn't a playground. It's a school. It's a classroom. It's not summer vacation. It's an education. God would have us apprentice under Him to learn how to love better, to learn how to love like He loves. How can we do that? How can we love better? Through practice. The same way that we learn to do anything better. That's what makes a good athlete. That's why football teams have been in camp for weeks now before their first games start this week or the next week if it's an NFL team. That's what makes a good artist drawing or sculpting or painting picture after picture after picture until they learn their technique. That's what makes a good musician practicing those scales on the piano practicing your different chords or your strumming patterns on the guitar, your scales there. What makes us more like God in love? 
practicing it, going out and doing it, putting these things into action. Love is not the expression of enthusiastic emotion the way that we usually think about it. Love is an expression of a character that has practiced and exercised these virtues. And the good news is that we already have a pattern to emulate in exercising it in Christ. I've read the suggestion that we try to insert Jesus everywhere in this text to see the real impact of this, and I think it's a helpful thing. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on His own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never ends. I think that's a fair portrait of it. And when we think about it that way, Jesus is our perfect example in love as in everything else. That, that challenges us. And it helps us to answer the question, where can we find a love like this, a love like what God demands of His people? Joseph Gant joined the United States Army in 1942. He served in the South Pacific during World War II. And after the war was over, he decided to re-up. He'd make this a career. In a chance meeting on a train ride from Texas to Los Angeles, he met his future wife, Clara. Now, her final destination was L.A., but he and the rest of the soldiers on board were headed on to Washington. And so once he got there, he wrote her a letter and asked her to come and visit him. She finally agreed. They courted for a while. They were sweethearts. And then ultimately they got married in 1948. Joseph then went on to serve in Korea. He was assigned as a field medic in the 2nd Division. And on November 30, 1950, elements of his division were attacked by Chinese forces in greater numbers. Numerous U.S. soldiers went missing, including Joseph. Clara waited for years for her husband to return. She met with government officials regularly, seeking information. She kept a little shrine in their bedroom with his bronze star with valor and his purple heart. She bought a home. She even got a gardener so that when he came home, he would never have to do any yard work. He could just go fishing or do whatever he wanted all day. Joseph Gant never came home to live in that house with Clara or to go fishing and skip out on yard work. He died in a POW camp from malnutrition and lack of medical care. But that was one of those things that was all unofficial. 
as so many of those cases are. His remains weren't returned and identified until 2013. For 63 years, with her husband missing and presumed dead, Clara held out hope that one way or another, he'd return home. She never remarried. On a cold, dark December Friday morning, on the tarmac of Los Angeles International Airport, Clara stood from her wheelchair and she cried over the flag-draped casket that had arrived home. They interviewed her and asked her about it. And she said, he told me if anything happened to him, he wanted me to remarry. And I told him, no, no. Here I am, still his wife, and I'm going to remain his wife until the day the Lord calls me home. Love. Godly love, that is, love that reflects His nature, never fails. It never ends. Because it's based not on a subjective emotional feeling. It's a choice. It's a decision that we make. It's our will to love. And that beautiful story of a wife's unending love for her husband only scratches the surface. It's only a pale reflection of the love that our Heavenly Father feels for us and that He's demonstrated toward us, manifested towards us in Christ. Where can we find the love that God wants us to have? in Him, in the love that He's demonstrated to us, giving His only Son on our behalf. God's love never ends. Have you come to Him this morning? If not, I want to urge you to respond to that gift of His love. Put your trust in Christ. Turn to Him in repentance Confess that Jesus is Lord. Be buried with Him in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Have that gift of God's love, that promise of eternal life. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian. Does the love of Christ flow through you to others? Do you live out that more excellent way? Do you love as Jesus loves you? Love does, indeed, win. Are you on the side of victory? It's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.